Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Lowy Institute. I'm Michael Fullylove, the Executive Director, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's event with Dr. Andrew Lee, MP, the Shadow Assistant Treasurer, but much more importantly for our purposes tonight, the author of Choosing Openness, Why Global Engagement is Best for Australia, a new Lowy Institute paper we've published in conjunction with Penguin. Um, ladies and gentlemen, the paper is a, is a take on one of the, the large issues of our time, uh, that is whether global engagement is an opportunity to be welcomed, to be savoured, or it's a threat to be avoided, a risk to be mitigated. In a number of countries around the world, the appeal of nativism and populism is growing. In Washington, the leader of the free world doesn't believe in the free world and is not interested in leading it. He's demolished the case for, um, for free trade, arguably, in the United States, really affected the balance of power in the Republican Party, which has traditionally been a stalwart of free trade. But it's not limited to the Republican side. We know that on the Democratic side as well, both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders were opposed to TPP. This is not the Democratic Party of Bill Clinton in the 1990s. Across the Atlantic, the historic project to unite the continent was dealt a blow by the withdrawal or the decision by the Brits to withdraw from the European Union, which was driven in part by an allergy to some of the, the, the global flows that Andrew talks about in his paper. And so, so these forces are very much being challenged at the moment. And so this is exactly the time that those people who believe in free trade, who believe in immigration and investment, it's exactly the time for those people to make the, the argument for openness. And that is exactly what this paper does. Ladies and gentlemen, we often host politicians at the Institute. Um, we <clears throat> publish their work in The Interpreter. And from time to time, we publish long form research as well. Uh, it's part of our mission to draw out Australia's politicians, to interest them in the world, to um, and uh, to get them thinking about solutions to, to international problems. Andrew is not actually the first author of a Lowy Institute paper from the Parliament. Russell Trude, the late Liberal Senator from Queensland, wrote a Lowy Institute paper a few years ago that became one of our most downloaded papers. And... Um, in, in the coming months, Linda Reynolds, who's a Liberal Senator from WA, will also publish a Lowy Institute paper on the topic of bipartisanship in uh, defence policy. Let me say this is the seventh Lowy Institute paper that we have published with Penguin. We believe we're still the only think tank in the world to have this kind of arrangement with a major commercial publisher who is, is able to help us to distribute uh, our ideas and to, and to pump them into the world. Um, and we've had some terrific authors, including John Edwards, Peter Harcher, Sean Dorney, Bobo Lowe, and others. Let me recognise uh, Anthony Bubalo, the Deputy Director of the Institute, who's the editor of the series, who does a wonderful job on, on the Lowy Institute papers, and also Lydia Papandreou, who works closely with Andrew on every aspect of the LIPs. And Lydia, Lydia's fingerprints and Anthony's fingerprints are all over every page of the Institute. I don't, of every Lowy Institute paper, I don't mean that they've physically um, checked, proofread every, every page of every copy, but they've done that too. So we've had a series, as I say, we've had a series of wonderful authors, 
Um, these are our flagship publications. They take a lot of work. Um, they take a lot of, uh, we're, we're somewhat intrusive on the editing side. We like to produce a really good product. Um, and Andrew Lee is a really um, honoured addition to that roll call of authors. Andrew is one of the most thoughtful and best read members of the Australian Parliament. He studied at the University of Sydney, where I first met Andrew, and at Harvard, where he took his PhD. In the mid-90s, he was a lawyer in Sydney and London before becoming associate to High Court Justice Michael Kirby. He was senior trade advisor to Senator Peter Cook. He was a professor of economics at the ANU, and he, he, served, he, um, he, uh, he worked at the ANU until 2010, when he won election to the federal parliament for the seat of Fenner. In his copious spare time, he's written a, a, a devastatingly intimidating number of books, and he hosts a podcast titled The Good Life. And of course, his relaxing hobby is marathon running, and he's just back from Berlin where he ran the Berlin Marathon. So Andrew, just reading your biography made me tired. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Andrew Lee. Thanks, Michael, for a very generous introduction and, of course, for encouraging me to write this paper. Uh, to work with you and with Anthony and with Lydia uh, really was uh, one of the best experiences I've had as a writer. So thank you to each of you as individuals and to the Lowy Institute. And I, of course, acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting today. Uh, and also to uh, acknowledge that uh, I, there are three generations of Lees in the uh, room now to, at the moment. So my son Theodore and my parents Barbara and Michael, thanks for uh, joining us. Uh, and thank you to all of you. I hope that I will have an opportunity during the course of the evening um, both to personalise your copy of Choosing Openness and to dramatically lower its resale value, uh, thereby, thereby improving the, uh, the new market. Uh, in... Uh, a couple of years ago, Australia reached the point in which, in just over two years, we had gone through four Prime Ministers. And at that point, the New South Wales Ambulance Service decided that a protocol they had followed unto then of assessing a patient's level of consciousness by asking them the name of the Prime Minister <laughs> needed to be scrapped. <laughs> it was a mark of what was going on around the world. Uh, we previously didn't have state elections with a swing of more than 10%, but we've had five in recent years. Uh, the dramatic election on the weekend of neo-Nazis into the German parliament for the first time since 1945 follows on historic successes from the far right uh, in Denmark, in Hungary, in the Netherlands, in Austria. Uh, the Brexit results and the Trump election are markers of the rise of a right-wing populism that urges us to hunker down in the face of difference. Now, there's a lot of numbers in choosing openness, though I have to say thanks to Lydia and Anthony, fewer than there were in the first draft. <laughs> but there's three I want to put in your mind this evening. The first is 0.3%. That's Australia's share of the world population. When you represent just one three-hundredth of the world population, it's almost impossible that you can do just as well by doing everything yourself. But the second number is 150. For most of human history, indeed 
probably 99.9% .9 of human history, we lived in groups of about 150. Anthropologist Robin Dunbar has a theory for this, which is that 150 is about as many human relationships as we can handle in our minds. It's a group around the size of what we've got in the room. And in, in a group of 150, it makes sense to be nervous about difference, to worry about outsiders, to see them as threats rather than opportunities. Dunbar's number has worked fine for the vast majority of human history. And it's the appeal to hunkering down in the face of difference which makes right-wing populism so powerful. But the third number is 4 out of 10. That's the share of Australians who are party loyalists now. Used to be 7 in 10 when I was born. Australians are moving away from traditional parties just as we're moving away from traditional organisations like big business or trade unions or the churches. And grabbing on to movements that say that the source of prosperity lies in anger and hunkering down in putting up the walls. Choosing openness makes a case for trade and migration and investment. In each of those areas, we can do better in managing rising temporary migration flows. In dealing with a world in which multilateral trade deals seem to be off the table and we need to settle for bilateral deals. In addressing the national security challenges of foreign investment and the question of whether it's appropriate to allow foreigners to buy apartments in our scarce central cities and leave them vacant. We can do better in tweaking each of those policies, but underneath them must sit a bedrock of, prog of progressive redistributive policies. As a social democrat, I support openness as a way of raising living standards. But as somebody who believes in openness, I support policies of social democracy because openness doesn't deliver its benefits evenly across the community. For the sake of fairness and for the sake of maintaining the political consensus around openness, we need to make sure we have a great health and education system, a strong social safety net and a fair tax system. And one final observation. Openness also demands that we engage in politics with a modicum of decency. Because it's the angry politics which is the best hothouse environment for right-wing populism. We know from the political psychologists that when people are scared, they turn away from difference, less likely to be willing to engage with outsiders. So if you believe in openness and tolerance, you've got to be about dialing down the volume. Yes, it might be temporarily tempting to think that you can fire back an angry response, but frankly, Twitter trolls and shouting are yet to bring down a single populist extremist. It might sound a little old-fashioned to say that openness advocates need to be reasonable. But as Yates once put it a century ago, uh, the worst are full of passionate intensity, the best lack all conviction. And to be a centrist is to be part of that sensible conversation and not to engage in the personalised attacks, the slanging matches and the angry politics.
Thank you to all of you for being tonight. Thank you for uh, Michael for hosting and very much look forward to Michael's and perhaps your questions. Thank you, Andrew. Um, we, we certainly agree here with um, the approach of more light and less heat and dialing down the attacks. We don't believe that the best lack all conviction. We think that the best have lots of convictions. You've, you've shown, you've demonstrated some convictions in here about the merits of openness and you've just talked about it. But yours is a somewhat lonely voice at the moment and it's not the forces of openness that seem to be on the front foot, it's um, the forces of closed-mindedness. And you mentioned right-wing populists, but it's also left-wing populists as well. I mean, after all, Hillary Clinton um, has said recently that, that she, she, she was fighting the wrong campaign. She was, people were coming to her with problems and she was proposing solutions, but actually they didn't want to hear solutions. They just wanted to hear someone empathise with the, the fix they're in. So why do you think around the world um, the forces of openness are, if not on the run, at least making a somewhat stealthy retreat? And what can we do to turn that around? I think there's a number of factors, Michael, that have driven the rise of right-wing populism. Uh, stagnant... Not, not just right-wing populism. No, that's, populism that's, that's on true. Those, on both sides. There, there, is, there is rising populism on both sides, but the best analyses, like the Barclays paper that they've done, suggest that there's a bigger rise on the far right than the left. Partly that's that the far right, particularly in Europe, has been willing to deploy race-based appeals, which have been electorally successful and which the left has tended to eschew. Uh, partly it's also that uh, there is a stronger international strain among the, among the far left. But it's true, we nearly got the situation in the French presidential election where we got to, you got to run off between a fascist and a communist. Uh, the, uh, the, the inequality that we've seen, the stagnant living standards, are one of these, uh, these drivers. It's harder to engage with the world when your own family's circumstances are doing it tough. Uh, which is one of the reasons, again, why you've got to make sure that you've got fair redistributive policies, if only to avoid the, the, the political backlash. You've also seen some very good entrepreneurs, Marine Le Pen more effective than her father, uh, Donald Trump more effective than Pat Buchanan or George Wallace before, before him. Um, so there's, there's individual trays that have helped here. But also that decline in traditional institutions, you know, an era in which Perhaps we're spending too much time explaining the rise of the fringe when in fact we should just be explaining the collapse of the centre uh, and those centrist mainstream institutions right outside politics as well uh, are doing it tough right now. You mentioned Donald Trump. Um, to what extent is Trump's electoral success making it harder for, for people like yourself, politicians who are making a case for openness? I mean, in the United States... As I said, he has, has dismantled a lot of the domestic support for free trade. He made pulling out of the TPP. I think I think I think he um, I think that was one of his acts on his first full day mm. in office um, during the campaign. He spoke out uh, often about um, about free trade, but also on migration, on foreign investment. He has really. I mean, you talked about an entrepreneur, and he has he has innovated a new style of political leadership that has been very effective in winning office. So how, how much do you think that, um, that example will affect political debates in other countries around the world? 
Well, the, circum the on-the-ground circumstances for uh, American lower and middle-class uh, households are significantly worse than they are here. Uh, you've got the uh, rise in mortality among low-educated whites, an extraordinary development in a century in which you know, the question has always been, how much is mortality falling? Now we've got it rising in the, in the US. Uh, you've got this, uh, this development on wages where... The typical American man, last time I looked, in the middle of the distribution, hadn't gotten a real wage increase since Richard Nixon was president. Uh, and at the same time, you've got uh, rampant incarcer incarceration rates. Um, so all of this creates an environment which is far more conducive to, to right-wing populism. But certainly, you know, you see people, for example, wearing bright red Make Australia Great Again caps who are clearly... Uh, wanting to be inspired by Donald Trump's example. Uh, and we need to make sure that, uh, that uh, as mainstream political parties, we have a clear offering to those who feel the economy isn't working for them. Well, on that subject, um, you, I know you saw the Lowy Institute polling this year that showed that Australia was at least partly resistant to some of these trends, that, mm. that, in term, that Australians were broadly positive about, um, about trade, about... Um, immigration and about globalization. Uh, I think the number from memory was something like four out of five Australians thought that globalization was mainly good for Australia. Why do you think Australians um, are different from, from other peoples in this respect? I mean, you alluded to the fact that things are better here. Perhaps you can talk a bit about the objective sort of economic realities for Australians. And is, mm. there, is there something else beyond their economic circumstances that makes us more disposed, perhaps, to openness? Yeah, I mean, you you're hit the nail on the head in terms of those the public opinion on those questions. On migration, many other countries look to the Australian points system as being a way of managing migration and so that uh, it, it doesn't undercut the local workforce. And indeed, attitudes to migration track the unemployment rate surprisingly well. On trade, having a relatively small share of workers in the manufacturing sector, I think, makes us less, means that fewer workers are in what the, the Americans would call trade-exposed industries. Uh, and that, in the United States, often means that people are losing their jobs to technology but blaming trade. In Australia, there's probably less of that. But the area in which we, we have more negative views than most other advanced countries is foreign investment. Uh, where Australians, uh, 9 out of 10 Australians, are opposed to foreign investment in farmland uh, and in which uh, there is, if anything, a souring of opinion over time to foreign investment in contrast to a mellowing of opinion on migration. That's a challenge for Australia because we're one of the most dependent countries on foreign capital. Uh, One-ninth of our total investment comes from overseas. And to turn off the foreign investment tap means fewer jobs and lower wages for Australia. Uh, you can see just in South Australia right now what the decision of car companies pulling out their foreign investment is doing for that, sta that state's economy. And Ross Garno told me in an interview for the book that he regards maintaining good policies around foreign investment today as being an equivalent challenge to the tariff reforms of the 1980s and 1990s. What about, I mean... Um... What about foreign investment in real estate, which is something that Australians are very mm. allergic to? What do you think about that? I mean, you mentioned the, 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 the example of foreigners buying apartment blocks 
in Sydney. I mean, certainly you go to a town like London or something and it, you know, at night, well-off suburbs in London or many of these cities are like ghost towns. Hmm. Is there, I mean, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that this troubles Australians. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, certainly our rules are quite different. The OECD ranks us as the fifth most uh, restrictive on country on foreign investment of the 35 countries it looks at. And, and one of the uh, instances in which we're more restrictive than the typical advanced country uh, is around not allowing foreigners in general to buy uh, existing residential property. Uh, in Berlin, for example, I met expats who uh, said, oh, yes, I've got my, my little Berlin apartment, which, of course, I just bought like any other German would do, like any German would do. Uh, you can't go up and do that in Australia. Uh, but I don't think it's unreasonable for us to say we want uh, foreign investors to add to the total housing stock, which is, uh, which is the current policy, uh, and then uh, move, we're now moving towards policies in which uh, we're discouraging people from leaving their homes vacant. Uh, we need to I talk in the book about some of the detail around how you do that. Uh, uh, it's one thing to say there's a lot of apartments which aren't using any water, it's another thing to say, we'll tax you if your apartment doesn't use any water. Effectively, what that's saying is, uh, would you mind please popping down to Bunnings and buying a little water dispenser device before you go off to Mascot Airport? Um, so, easier to implement, uh, easier to talk about a vacant property tax than to implement, but the principle's got to be right. If you want to leave your gold bars lying around the middle of Sydney where they're going to be a pain for the rest of us, then you should probably be, be putting a little bit more into the social, uh, social fabric. Let me ask you one other question, then I want to go to the audience and give you you all an opportunity to ask Andrew some questions. What um, I mean, trade is a is a long term interest of yours. What are the chances of multilateral a multilateral um, trade deal in the future? What would what would take what would it take to um, to get the multilateral trading system out of its out of its awaken from its its mm. coma? And how, how worried are you by Mr. Trump's uh, attitudes to trade? Because so far, um, he hasn't, this has been the dog that didn't bark in a way. He, he pulled out of TPP, but a lot of the other things that he promised to do in relation to China and the WTO and so on, he hasn't moved on yet. Are you worried? Yes, absolutely. Uh, particularly for Australia. I mean, if you're going to hunker down for the, from the rest of the world, uh, you'd rather be a country of 300 million people than 25 million. Uh, so losing access to overseas markets is far more dangerous for Australia than the United States. Uh, trade's just another form of specialisation, much as uh, I would guess everyone in the room doesn't uh, fix your own cars, make your own clothes, cut your own hair. So too it makes sense for Australia to specialise in what we do best and buy other, other services and goods from the rest of the world. I worry that the last uh, multilateral deal may well have been done through the WTO on this consensus-based model. Uh, the only glimmer of light, I think, Michael, is around these specialised deals, perhaps on environmental products. Uh, but uh, now, probably the new model, and I know there's smart heads in Geneva thinking about this, uh, will be around uh, imagining how you might get a largish group of like-minded countries to strike a deal, which others can then bolt into. Uh, effectively, a, an opt-in model. Yeah, the TPP has some of that character, but frankly, it was there was just too much non-trade stuff in the TPP, uh, including restrictions on intellectual property laws, which might have been right for the US, but probably 
were not uh, welfare enhancing for the majority of other TPP signatories. All right, who would like to ask Andrew a question? Great, I'll take this lady here and then that gentleman. If you could wait for a microphone, if you could tell us your name, if you wouldn't mind, and if you could um, confine yourself to a question rather than a statement, that would be appreciated. Certainly, I understand. Um, my name's Lyndall Howison. Um, I'm interested in this sort of inverse relationship between global conflict and trade, and um, I wondered if you could comment, Andrew, on the sort of world peace outcome from choosing openness and thinking about North Korea and Trump at the moment in that question. Well, certainly, Lyndall, there's pretty good evidence that countries which trade together are less likely to end up in conflict. Um, yes, it's true that Britain and Germany had trading relationships prior to World War I, but if you simply look on average over the, uh, the course of the, the last century, uh, those interpersonal relationships are important in terms of building trust, and trade just means that countries have more to lose from, uh, from conflict. Uh, we should celebrate in particular the increased trading relationships that we're seeing uh, through the Asia-Pacific between countries like uh, uh, Korea, uh, mainland China, uh, Taiwan, Japan. Uh, though an increase in trade there is a useful countervailing force against uh, hotter heads prevailing. Uh, and multilateral trading deals can, in that sense, help to, help to spread prosperity. It's not the only way of doing it. Obviously, you want to make sure that you've got uh, strong aid programs in, in place at the same time, but it's one part of building a more peaceful world. Thank you. Yes, the gentleman at the back. I'd like to talk about social change, especially as it relates to an aging population. It seems to me that one of the biggest triggers for reactionary politics for the right was the polarization of elderly populations as social change kicked in and the cleavage is around sort of a younger, older culture war. With Australia's ageing population, is that something that we should worry about? Yes, it, sorry, what was your name? Sorry, my name is Patrick. So, Patrick, it's, uh, the question immediately brings to mind the Alternative for Deutschland posters that were up around Berlin when I was there on the weekend, uh, which almost entirely seemed to depict young women, uh, despite the fact that apparently the typical AFD voter is an older man. Uh, and probably why they feature you. <laughs> who's to speculate? Uh, and certainly, we have we have some evidence that uh, that that all of us follow that kind of. That there is a Bernard Shaw norm of people moving to the right as they uh, as they age. Uh, but I don't think this is the principal driver around uh, uh, populism, which you see arising in countries with quite different demographies. Uh, there is, though, a, a, a broad challenge about what we do uh, for workers who uh, are struggle with, retra with retraining uh, and yet are before the pension age. So I don't think a universal basic income is the right way to go for Australia. I agree with my colleague Jim Chalmers, who uh, has an excellent book out this, this week on that question. Uh, but I do worry about... Uh, People like the, the constituent who came into my electorate office the other day, who's in his mid-50s, who's worked a range of manual jobs around delivery, uh, but has a bung shoulder, uh, a, a gammy leg, uh, suffers from a lot of stress in, in, when he's placed under time pressures, uh, and yet is still a decade away from getting the pension. 
and how Australia manages a social safety net for people like that, I think, is a first-order challenge. The gentleman in the red tie. Thank you. Uh, my name is David Bentham, and I believe in openness and uh, international trade as being a, a good growth manufacturing process. However, neither the Labour or the Liberal Party have a policy on population. Uh, we do find, particularly in Western Sydney, where I now live, that there is extreme pressure uh, that stems from very high population growth. Uh, we see it in the lack of infrastructure, the long, the, the, the very poor public transport systems, and so on. Uh, why, and when I speak, I've been speaking to politicians on this for many years, and they all sort of ramble on a bit about it. Uh, why do we not have a population policy expressed as such uh, with perhaps a, a rather less than we have today so the economy can, in fact, uh, keep up with the required infrastructure? Thank you. Great question, David. So three ways in which the population changes. Uh, Australians have more babies. Australians die less and we change net migration. To a first order approximation, we don't uh, uh, focus our longevity policies on population. We just want people to live for as long as possible. Uh, we governments occasionally talk about changing the birth rate, but in practice, very little we do actually matters, including the baby bonus. So population policy is basically migration policy. And we do talk a lot about getting the migration settings right. For Australia, we've had a higher than average level of mi migration over the course of the past decade, and that's certainly been a contributory factor to uh, some of the challenges Australia faces. But when Dick Smith says that 95% of the pressure on Australian housing prices is due to migration, he's at odds with the vast majority of experts who've looked at this in the OECD and here in Australia. Migrants tend, on average, to be less likely to buy a home and when they do, to move into smaller places. Uh, traffic congestion, likewise. Migrants are less likely to drive. If you want to get those policies right, and I passionately do, you should focus on them directly, not through the ineffective and indirect lens of migration. Uh, we ought to be encouraging the uptake of driverless cars, which on some estimates could halve traffic congestion. Uh, we ought to be making sure that our tax policies don't encourage people to, don't encourage investors to crowd out first home buyers. And we need investment in public transport, indeed including foreign investment in public transport, in order to make sure that we reduce those commuting times. Now, in terms of driverless cars, that raises the broader question of automation. Mm. So how much of a, are you an optimist or a pessimist when it comes to automation? What are, what are we all going to do for jobs when the robots take over? Uh, so I think one of the important perspectives on this is to recognise that we face what economists call Knightian uncertainty. Uh, we simply don't know which particular jobs will go. And anyone who says that they can tell you it's going to be 47% of jobs overall and 39% in this particular industry just hasn't looked at the history of occupational projection, which is a history of economists, get, forecasters getting it wrong. So in that environment, you want to make sure that people have a broad set of skills that allow them to adapt as the labour market changes. 
Lifelong learning needs to become the norm. Uh, we need to be averse to giving people a set of skills that fit them very well for today's occupations, but appallingly for tomorrow's. And take driverless cars, for example. If we train you only to be able to fix today's internal combustion engines, then you'll be out of a job in 50 years' time when the cars that are moving around are basically computers on wheels. But if we train you in the general automotive space, including the skills to download a software patch, uh, then you'll be able to do more than wash the wheels of uh, the new driverless cars when they come along. Do you think in the future people will work shorter weeks? Uh, I would like to uh, to see it. I, uh, old-fashioned enough to see leisure as a good and work as a bad, which is what we teach our first-year students. Uh, and I think improving the quality of leisure is uh, is really important as well. Uh, making sure that leisure uh, isn't just computer gaming, but it's also building the quality of human interactions. Uh, there's a little bit going on uh, in terms of a conversation as to what it is to live a good life outside work. But that's too timid and fragile and thin a conversation right now. I'd really like to see to see more of it about how we encourage people to make a substantive deep contribution to a better society uh, outside work. Uh, and when we've got that, I think we'll feel more comfortable about uh, potential shortening of work hours. Uh, but you know, one of my British Labor Party friends, uh, his one-line critique of universal basic income, and he says it's turbo welfareism. Uh, and he worries that simply uh, giving up on the world of work and saying we're going to cut checks for the population is to give up on a lot of what gives people meaning in the current environment. All right. Who has other questions? Yes, ma'am, in the blue. If you could just wait for the microphone. Uh, thank you, Carol Austin. I want to talk about the. Uh, I'd like you to talk about the role of institutions. When people vote, they have great difficulty um, absorbing all of the factors they need to take into account. They typically look to the institutions that they trust for guidance, and that has been the church, particularly in rural communities. It's been business. It's been their political leaders, and all of these people have betrayed that trust. The church, shamefully, on pedophilia. Business has had a number of scandals, and politicians have had a number of scandals. So we've got to a situation where the people that you normally turn to for guidance have disappointed. One, the question is, why has that been so widespread across all of the institutions that people traditionally look to? And is that an explanation of why people are looking for somebody to fill a void that's been created by traditional institutions failing to honour their obligation to the community? Yeah, Carol, I think you've... You've hit the nail on the head. I uh, worked when I was at Harvard as a research assistant for Robert Putnam just after he'd put out Bowling Alone. Uh, and a decade after that, wrote my own version of Bowling Alone, disconnected, looking at the trends in Australia. Uh, it's not just churches and trade unions, but also scouts, guides, rotary lions. We have fewer uh, fr close friends than we did a generation ago. We're less likely to know our neighbours. Uh, we're less likely to play organised sport, less likely to vol volunteer, uh, and indeed even the share of us who are donating money seems to have fallen over time. Uh, so I would characterise what you're talking about as, as the bowling alone problem in a, in a broad sense. Uh, and in that environment, uh, for a mainstream politician like myself, I think part of the challenge uh, is making sure that uh, we build up the trust in our institutions uh, you can do that in sort of 
sensible level level-headed ways but Emmanuel Macron and uh, Justin Trudeau have also shown that the center can be sexy uh, and indeed as centrist globalizers they do give hope to the idea that it's possible to uh, build a popular movement that takes on the populists. You described yourself as a mainstream politician, Andrew. You were an economist for a long time before you were a politician. Um, what, what, what are the fun bits of being a politician and what do you miss about being a scholar and an economist by trade? So, Michael, one of the best things you can do in an economics uh, seminar is to uh, identify for the speaker the fatal flaw in their paper uh, and point out to them how they can go about fixing that. Turns out that that's not uh, a performance which is so appreciated in a party room. Uh, <laughs> and I think for me, recognising the role of teamwork in politics uh, took longer than, than you might expect uh, that it would. Uh, but I enjoy and I value that teamwork side more and more. Uh, I see more the strength that comes out of collective decision-making processes uh, and the notion that being elected as a member of a party gives me two obligations. The obligation to argue hard for the best policy in the party room and the obligation to uh, vote the party position when I go onto the floor of the parliament. Uh, I, I find myself reverting to type more as an economist. I think of myself as a current rather than a former economist and, and arguing the economic position in the party room. And I love the fact that mine is a party that is very comfortable with people putting out books. Uh, I mentioned Jim Chalmers that's out this week. Terry Butler had a, had a, uh, had a book out last month. Uh, Chris Bowen has recent, recently put out a book on Australian treasurers. Bill Shorten put out a book in the last election about his, uh, his view on the country. And there is a sense that to wrestle with ideas is a worthy part of politics. Uh, and I love being around colleagues who you can sit down next to in a division uh, and have a conversation about uh, strategy in the, uh, in the Boer War uh, based on the last book they've been reading. That's fun. You also, um, you, the last question was about the decline of institutions. Um, of course, people are interacting um, in new ways, in digital ways and on social media. Mm. You, I mean, we've experienced that, uh, we experience that at the Institute every day and we've experienced it in particular in the last few months because we invited Brett Stevens to give a speech uh, and he gave that speech on the weekend and it was published in the New York Times and it was actually the most emailed article in the New York Times this week. But a lot of people on social media took exception to, um, uh, to that invitation based on um, some of Brett's beliefs on, on, on other issues and climate in particular. You operate, I guess, in a more combative um, environment in social media where you're, um, it, it, I, I guess, ba based on my, my observation, you can, um, not you in particular, but politicians can come in for, for a lot of heat and fire on social media. What, what's your experience with it? What, what do you like about it? And how, how do we, I mean, you spoke right at the beginning about how we need to try to dial down um, the heat and the anger and the toxicity. But it doesn't seem like the technology really pushes us in that direction. It does seem that social media have, have definitely more connected, have, 
have gives us access to a lot more information, but it doesn't hasn't necessarily made us more enlightened or wise. It's certainly been a subsidy to the haters, and uh, I think it is it is easier now in an environment of twenty four hour TV and and Twitter uh, and three word slogans to be in the business of anger and hate than in the business of trying to build broad consensus. Uh, but there is that old sort of idea that uh, Martha Nussbaum has written, written an awful lot about, that Bell Hooks has a terrific book on, uh, that uh, Gandhi and Mandela popularised, the notion of a politics of love uh, in which you look for common ground with others uh, and you approach people as basically being of goodwill. That Greek idea of agape is a deeply hard idea. Um, Kierkegaard talked, it about, talked about it as, as one of the hardest ideas to grasp. Uh, but through that, I think, does lie some possibility for building a sense of, share, of shared connectedness, and particularly for taking on racism as it, as it emerges. Um, you simply can't take on the racists by shouting them down. You have to do it through a politics of love. Um, I haven't thought hard enough about how to make it work, but I'm, I'm constantly um, struck just by the, the genuine decency of many of those uh, on the other side of Parliament. Um, we're flying out of Canberra Airport and uh, uh, my uh, Queensland LNP colleague Ewan Jones comes up to, uh, to Theodore and uh, starts up a conversation about what it is to be a middle child of three and uh, uh, if, uh, gives Theo his card and says, you can give me a call any time you need to talk about being a middle child of three. Um, He's looking for numbers for his branch, I bet. Look, you know, Ewan's a former Queensland auctioneer and somebody who has uh, emotional intelligence just off the charts of anything, any, anything I'll imagine. Uh, I'm going to vote against him on a whole <laughs> bunch of different issues in the parliament, but it's deeply dangerous if I ever get into the view of thinking that Ewan isn't just wrong, but he's evil or disingenuous or poorly motivated. Uh, and you have to be really careful of that on Twitter. Um, I think... You saw that, a lot of that in the attacks on you and your institution, and you responded to it in a, in a very carefully calibrated way um, that does you and Lowy a great deal of credit. Thank you. Other questions? Yes, Steve, Steve Grenville, non-resident fellow at the Lowy Institute. Uh, thanks, Michael. Uh, I'm sure you've read the uh, Berkeley sociologist's book, uh, Strangers in Their Own Land, yes. where the, the abiding image coming out of that is a cue for... Uh, the uh, uh, American way of life. Uh, the queue was not only moving slowly, but people are jumping the queue because the government is interfering in the queue to help them. Now, this is social security and various kinds of discrimination. We want to do more of it, but how do we get the right balance of that? Yeah, I mean, I would highly rec recommend Strangers in Their Own Land. Um, Hillbilly Elegy has, has gotten more, more press, but Strangers in Their Own Land looks at Louisiana uh, and the, the, the odd confluence of the fact that Louisiana uh, has both some of the lowest standards of living, the highest rate, rates of infant mortality and unemployment, uh, and the worst environment in the United States, uh, and yet attitudes towards um, polluting companies are very warm, Attitudes towards the social safety net is very is very cold, uh, and that 
you know, what she talks about, Dali Hochschild talks about as cognitive dissonance is, uh, is, is a real challenge for those of us who seek to, broad, to, to make a broad consensus. Um, we do need to make sure that we're not making the conversation more complicated than it needs to be. Uh, I think one of the best things that social media can offer is, is simple explainers. Uh, I don't agree with Robert Reich on every issue, for example, but gee, he's done a lovely job of making inequality accessible uh, for a mainstream time-poor audience. Uh, and there's a lot of thinking going on in the Democratic Party about how to uh, build a set of policies which tap into those questions. Um, concerns over market concentration, for example, I think are live and accessible and go back to you know, a long-held American progressive uh, concern about uh, trust busting, as they'd put it, uh, or tackling monopolies as we would. Got time for a couple more questions. I'm going to privilege those who haven't asked a question yet, so if you don't mind. This gentleman over here, and this gentleman, and that gentleman, yes. yes oh, hi, Andrew. It's uh, Kian here. Um, I'd be interested in your thoughts on um, social, uh, the fact that a lot of us have multiple identities. I think that's one thing that I find wonderful about Australia is that people come from so many parts of the world. And is that something to be celebrated? And also... Um, what's your, do you have a view on whether our politicians in the MP should have, is it an issue that they are citizens of other countries? Is that, is that something that we need to be concerned about? Indeed, and do you have another passport? That's the other question. <laughs> uh, yeah, great question. Uh, my, uh, since I acknowledged other members of my family, my brother Tim has walked into the room and he, uh, uh, like I, grew up in Indonesia uh, and took a little while to speak, and my parents were a bit worried about his linguistic skills uh, till suddenly he burst into voice talking English to the family and Indonesian to the servants who lived in the household. Uh, that dual identity is, I think, an enormous strength. Uh, there's some evidence that bilingualism raises intelligence. Uh, certainly people who uh, are migrants are more likely to start businesses, to trade, Migrants have higher patenting rates and are more likely to win Nobel Prizes. Um, so we ought to be very proud of what migrants uh, bring us. Uh, and indeed, when we look at potential migrants, we shouldn't just look at them as mouths to feed, but minds to contribute to the social compact. Each new migrant is another potential uh, Victor Chang, another potential Tan Lee, another potential Frank Lowy. Uh, and we do, in our politics, probably need to do a better job of... Uh, uh, bringing dual citizens into the in, in, into the polity. Uh, one of the ironies about what's going on at the moment is that for many of those people with dual passports, um, I'm not one, by the way. I'm the only person in my household without two passports. Uh, it, for those people, they could actually run as a politician in the other country. Uh, we're unusual in uh, in preventing dual citizens. Uh, my party's platform has been to to change that for a number of years, but. It's not top of our agenda, and given the 8 out of 44 success rate on referenda, you wouldn't like to, to think that, uh, that it's got a high chance of passing anytime soon. Um, support on principle, but I don't expect we'll get to, it, get to it in my lifetime. So the best we'll do is the more important work, in some extent, of making sure that we celebrate an Australia based on values, not stereotypes, uh, that allows migrants to continue plugging into the social compact. Andrew, on that topic, why should any of us feel 
in any way sorry or sympathetic to your colleagues on both sides of the house who find themselves in the grip of um, who, who find themselves in trouble now on this question of dual citizenship because um, it's it's whether it's right or wrong it's part of the law of the land it's in the constitution and has been for a very mm. long time um, and when you hear the stories I, I must say on both sides um, it sort of beggars belief that, that people make all the other sacrifices for political life, but they don't go through the simple exercise before they stand of asking mum and dad, were they born overseas? And if they were investigating it a bit a bit further, perhaps finding out where their grandparents were born, doing a Google search, maybe even calling the consul, the consul general. I mean, why is this so hard um, for someone who wants, after all, the great honour of, of representing their fellow citizens in the parliament? Why shouldn't um, why, why should we feel sorry for them at all? No, you're right. We shouldn't. And you look at you look at who's who's fallen. There's not a single Labor or Liberal person among them. Uh, it's the Nationals, One Nation, and the Greens that clearly just didn't have processes to ask these questions beforehand. I mean, I went through a very extensive vetting form before I uh, uh, ran for Parliament. Uh, they quickly worked out there were no dual citizenship risks, but they were very worried that they. My uh, work with ANU could be construed as an office of profit under the Crown as a university that's constituted under a federal act. So I spent all this time trying to make sure that every single possible dollar coming to me from ANU or the Australian Research Council uh, was, uh, was turned back. And that's because my party took the vetting process seriously, as, as you say, every other party should have done. All right, a couple more questions. Yes, sir. Um, hi. Hi. Uh I'm not particularly worried about Australia because, oh, sorry, Andrew's my name too. Um, not particularly worried about Australia. I think we're a lucky country and not much happens here. I just want to lift it up a, a level. Um, I am worried about global uh, issues uh, and technology disruption is one of them. Um, arguably, global economics works. Global politics doesn't. And nationalism is the, the enemy of that. What do we have to do, do you think, to move in the direction of global politics? Yeah, it's really interesting, Andrew. So when I said 0.3%, uh, you immediately thought, well, that's a small share. Let's talk about the 99.7%. Uh, I, uh, I think it's, that answer is specific to the, the particular institution that we want to make work. Um, for the World Trade Organization, uh, it's, it operated for decades uh, merely because most countries didn't have a say and didn't employ their veto right. Um, that's now gone, and the WTO consensus-based model needs to needs to be moved. Uh, you look at the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, and they've done more to to adapt to the the current environment. The UN Security Council, you know, clearly needs an overhaul from uh, from its vestiges of being the victors of uh, of, of World War II, uh, and the UN General Assembly uh, needs uh, significant work in order to make sure that it's a more effective. Uh, forum for uh, for debate. Now, in other areas, we haven't managed to to build the institutions we need. Uh, Jeff Sachs makes the, uh, the the comment that we don't have an overarching agreement on migration as such. We have it's merely a refugee agreement, uh, and getting more global uh, conversation, a healthier global conversation around migration. Jeff Sachs argues is uh, is is absolutely vital. Can we do the same on investment? I'm less sure the, the story of uh, a lot of the backlash against globalisation actually happens uh, as a result of that attempt to get global consensus around investment. 
but on the area of tax fairness, we could do a lot more. Uh, we have a system at the moment where there's too many countries getting away with basically being zero tax jurisdictions uh, in which they have more companies than people uh, and they're draining tax dollars away from, uh, from other countries. That mattered much less in a manufacturing exports world than it does in a services export world. Uh, in a world in which the biggest five firms are uh, tech companies that can theoretically just move their production to any little place they want to, we've got to get the global tax agreements right. All right, last question from that gentleman there, yes. Hi, Andrew, Joe here. Um, apart from the own, your own book that you, you've just written, what book or books would you recommend for people more fully trying to understand the importance of openness? And, and maybe just finally, you can often get quite despondent thinking about the Dunbar number and the fundamental tribalism of human nature, but what are some of the better angels of our nature that, that you can identify to inspire us for, for openness for the future? <laughs> Joe, that's a Do great... Do you know this guy? Uh, we may have met once. Uh, Joe, that's a, that's a lovely uh, question to end on. Um, I, uh, I don't know if I've got a single sort of book. I mean, if you want to be troubled, then uh, Strangers in Their Own Land, Hillbilly Eulogy, will uh, uh, make you concerned about the United States. Uh, if you want a slightly different perspective than mine on globalisation, then Danny Roderick's series of books are invariably worth reading. Uh, I certainly uh, uh, learned a great deal from reading uh, Jim Chalmers' book on the, on the technology side and Indeed, there's, there's, that's a burgeoning international literature going back to the second machine age folks and, and there's a, a thoughtful book on, uh, on technological change and the rise of the robots coming out um, about as fast as, uh, as robots would be able to produce them at the moment. Um, but that we've got to understand that literature, that literature better. Uh, I guess the, the hopeful side would be to think how attitudes towards religion have changed over the course of uh, the last couple of generations. So if we go back to the stage at which my parents were dating, um, there uh, were they as Methodists to have dated Catholics, that would have been quite a story in the family. Uh, the Catholic-Protestant divide was significant uh, and indeed, the split within my own party tore households apart for generations. I'm sure that my kids wouldn't have a clue whether their friends are Catholics or Protestants. It just doesn't matter any longer. So in the space of a couple of generations, we've turned this Catholic-Protestant divide into something that ripped apart families to something that doesn't matter. And the great hope is that we can do that with race. Uh, that, Joe, we can, we can get to a point where... Maybe not Theo's generation, but perhaps Theodore's kids uh, look at racial and ethnic differences in the same way as uh, the, the current generation uh, look at the Catholic-Protestant divide. Uh, as something perhaps to be noted the third time you meet someone, but really not a salient difference. Uh, and to the extent that it matters, uh, a cause for conversation and celebration uh, rather than a source of fear and hunkering down. Well, what a nice note to end things on. Um, yes.
Um, nice to end on the politics of love, a phrase that doesn't often come up at the Lowy Institute. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, often we get um, feel very pessimistic about um, Australian politics and it can look it can look like a very dusty, barren field down there, but occasionally you see green shoots of hope, and uh, and Andrew's one of them. And when we at the Lowy Institute see one of those green shoots of hope, we immediately go and ask them if they'll write a paper for us. Um, so I I want to thank you, Andrew, for for finding the time in your incredibly busy schedule between marathons to research and write this um, terrific book. Um, I want to encourage everybody here to. Buy the book. I think it's for sale over here, and Andrew will sign it. I think it costs ten dollars a copy. Um, and please buy it and recommend it to your to your friends and colleagues. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Andrew Lee MP. Good punch.